Welcome to If This Bar Could Talk, a podcast about bartenders and the stories they have to tell, as well as the storied history of cocktails, spirits, and bars. I'm Blair Beavers, and here's your host, Leanne Sims. And our guest tonight is Logan Demi from Citizens Trust here in Columbus, Ohio. Thanks for coming, Logan. Uh, Thank you for having me. So, Logan, you are like the, I'm going to call you the mad scientist of bartending because you've introduced us to some techniques that we have never seen before. And before we get to your techniques, I want to talk about your your past. So, if I understand it right, you started out as a barista. Yes, uh, at Starbucks, actually. Okay. Uh, but then I worked in actual cafes um, in Cincinnati at Rose Street Cafe. Um, okay. then in Columbus, I worked at, uh, Luck Brothers and Grandview and I actually roasted for one line for quite a while as well. And yeah. then you worked at Mouton. Was that your first bartending gig? Yeah, actually I was working at Luck Brothers and the person who was opening Mouton, uh, Youssef, uh, thought that he was going to have a coffee shop in the cocktail bar. And so I sold him one of my coffee grinders and he hired me as a barista. Um, and the idea of Mouton being a cafe just never panned out. And uh, our bartender on a Friday didn't show up, and so I went from being a barista server to being the bartender. Just like that? All right, so let's back up a little bit. What is your <laughs> formal education? <clears throat> well, I've, I've graduated from high school, as um, <laughs> most, uh, I guess, bartenders have. Uh, and then I went to... Uh, the University of Cincinnati uh, to study chemical engineering. And I, I worked as an environmental engineer um, in like a work studies. Uh, then I transferred to OSU and that's where I took the job at Luck Brothers and then the job at Mouton and continued to study. And a, about four and a half years into chemical engineering and a five-year degree, I decided that um, that wasn't going to be for me. Well, that explains a lot, though. Chemical engineering mm-hmm. and uh, your your crazy techniques that you use. So, so you didn't know anything about bartending when you like just switched gears from barista to bartender. You just how well, like well, how did you know how to do stuff? Yeah, I mean, um, Mouton was really beautiful because it was supposed to be a wine bar, um, and then Youssef saw this book called the New York Cocktail Book. And he really loved the graphic design and thought that Ohio needed a, a craft cocktail bar, um, but no one knew how to bartend. So what he did is he took the pages of the craft cocktail book and put them on the wall. And I so we could that. just, yeah, we could read the yeah. recipes off the wall as opposed to actually knowing them. <laughs> so that was my first night bartending was literally, oh, someone ordered a South Side. And I'm like looking, like, where's the South? Oh, there it is. That's the Audrey Saunders method. I'm like... Oh, I can make a south side now. Oh, someone's ordered a Manhattan. There's a Manhattan on the wall. Um, someone's asked for, you know, a pink lady. That's not on the wall. I'm like, oh, we can't make that. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's, and you're not that old. Like you're you, what are you? Twenty five? No, I'm I'm thirty. Are you really? Yeah. You look um, like so you're... I uh, I took over Mouton when I was twenty one um, to manage the bar, and it was myself and Matt McGrath. Um, who I was living with. And basically, you know, Yusef was there and he was the, the wine focused person. And he was like, creating the, the food boards, the cheeses, and the meats. And it was just Matt and I who were actually making the drinks. And, you know, we were 21 and 24, maybe 22. You know, Matt's not that much older than me either. 
And so we just like, we didn't want to learn about wine. We wanted to learn about cocktails. Yeah. And so that's what we learned about. That's, that's kind of amazing. So the chemical engineering uh, background explains your mad scientist stuff, but what about, you're really good at flavors. Like, you know, where does that kind of, does, is that's, that I mean, that's a hundred percent coffee. Um, you know, when you walk into a coffee shop and if, if you really trust the person making your coffee, then you know that that person is, you know, they've made a shot of espresso and they've tasted it and they've decided that, you know, it's over extracted and it's bitter or it's under extracted and it's sour or, you know, the extraction potential is, is wrong. And so they've done that with their palates. Um, and they've, they've changed it and they've made multiple shots in the morning so that when you have your espresso at, you know, 8 a.m., it's not the first one that's been made. Um, and so that like really getting like in tune with what you're making, um, was something that I learned through coffee, uh, wow. especially working with one line, um, as a roaster, we would, I was going to say not at Starbucks, not that's at Starbucks, but, but Starbucks actually, Starbucks teaches you you know, you do one, two, and three. Like it's the order and the process in which you make um, sure, what, sure. what people need. And so Starbucks actually is really good for training people to kind of be that like that engineering idea. And going back to chemistry, it's not so much about chemistry. It's more about how do you make the process make sense? You know, do you add part A, part B, or part C first? And, you know, if part C is a lot faster, why don't you just make that, serve it, and then go back to part A. Hmm. And so Starbucks taught me that. That makes sense. One line taught me how to taste. And, you know, when we, when I was roasting, we would get green coffee and we would kind of have like a flavor map of what we wanted it to be. But we really didn't know. And so we'd roast it in this very kind of rudimental way, like a cupping roast to a very low temperature. Um, and we'd taste it through this, this process called cupping. And when you cup every day or every week, you have to, you know, we have to have like a, a similar way to talk about things, you know, because the way that I taste pepper is not the way that you taste pepper. Right. Um, and so learning how we can all say that when we taste something, we say that this is pepper means, means that when we go forward, we, you know, we know how to talk about our palates. And so coffee was the thing that really taught me to understand my palate and how to explain what I'm tasting in a way that you understood. That's amazing. Okay, so you're at Mouton, you're 21, 22 years old, and then somehow you go to, is it Singapore? How yeah. did that happen? Yeah, that was a, I, that was not a, a quick process. I was um, at Mouton in various capacities for five years, and it was at different stages. Uh, we went through an ownership change uh, where um, Todd purchased the business. He really believed in the staff that was currently there uh, when he purchased it and invested with us and and really helped us travel. Um, a lot of what he realized was that you know, as bartenders in Columbus, we didn't make a ton of money. We weren't making what someone makes in New York or Chicago. And so kind of offsetting that by you know either paying for travel or you know giving us vacation so that we could travel. And so I think m my biggest breakthrough was Tales of the Cocktail. Um, he paid for me to go the first year. Um, the second year, I was part of the CAP program, um, which was um, something that I think that Crystal Levy, uh, who's at M, mm -hmm. um, who's been, you know, very much, you know, either uh, in front of the scene star or behind the scene star of Columbus, uh, really acted as, as one of my first mentors. Uh, and she helped me become part of that first year as a CAP. 
Um, I, I feel like that was the only way that. And the CAP is Cocktail Apprentice Program. Yeah, the Cocktail Apprentice Program. It's the the group that makes all of the drinks at Tales of the Cocktail, which is probably the largest cocktail program in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, up to you know fifteen thousand people have attended. Yeah, I'm not sure that there's a larger attendance throughout the world. Um, in terms of financial, financial, maybe Berlin is a little bit bigger, uh, but Tales is you know it's on the map of if, if you wanted to be part of the scene. Going to Tales is like that thing. Yeah, and right? even if you're not a bartender, it's really fun to go. We went a couple <laughs> of years ago and absolutely enjoyed ourselves. Yeah. And that's of one of the things that, you know, Tales isn't just about, you know, being super geeky and only appealing to this certain subsect of craft cocktail bartenders. You know, it brings people who are in a spectrum of the bartending industry as well as also enthusiasts and, you know, just, you know, customers, which big drinkers like us. <laughs> I'm speechless. <laughs> All right, so you're at Mouton, you go to Cap, you're a Cap, and but how does that get you to overseas? Uh, uh, you know, it's one of those like series series of like unfortunate events. You know, I met someone in 2013. Um, she was just like this awesome force. Uh, I met her again in 2015, and I knew that at 2015 that I was looking for jobs um, outside of Columbus. I applied to roles in, um, you know, from New York to San Francisco, and uh, I, you know, I sent her my CV uh, or resume. Uh, she was living in Singapore, and um, I was a- applying for what I thought was a job in Seoul, in Korea, uh, to work for this really awesome bartender who had just left New York, Chris Lauder, uh, and. You know, I didn't really hear back, and then I heard back, and they said, you know, like that role is not going to be for you. If you'd like to apply for the head bartender of this cocktail bar called 28 Hong Kong Street, uh, we'll take your submission and we'll go through the interview process. So I had two interviews for it and radio silence. You know, I, I sat there and I was like, okay, sweet. Didn't get the job. I didn't really realize what 28 was. I, I Googled it and I, I learned about it. Um, it had been voted best international cocktail bar, best international bar team at Tails. Uh, it was on the world's 50 best, uh, and I just didn't know. And then all of a sudden, I got a call, and it wasn't that I'd gotten the job. It was that I had another interview. And so I went through a personality test. and Personality test? Yeah. That's smart. Um, I, 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 at this point, learning about the personality test, it wasn't necessarily about what your personality is. It was mm-hmm. about learning how to integrate you into the existing team okay so not yeah. like how you interact with customers but how you, okay um, gotcha and I, I still smart I, I would assume at this point that i already had the job and they were just figuring out what what the you know right. what the best way to bring me on board and so i think like it was september 1 i got told that i got offered the job and october 3rd i was living in singapore wow wow and that was that Did- was crazy did they help you find a place to live, or did you just wing it? I mean, I got I got paid to move, and um, I had I'd help, and I was in Singapore working as a, the head bartender of possibly one of the most famous bars in the world. Um, so I had financial capabilities of of doing what I wanted to, um, but I had absolutely no clue what I was in for. And I was, I spent eighteen months there working for this, you know, kind of every day is a Saturday. It's always full. Um, we only have 70 seats, but, you know, we're, we're pushing two and a half million dollars in cocktail sales. And it's one of these just like, ball, wow, I don't know. I can't say 
Am I allowed to curse? Oh, oh yes. Absolutely. Oh, okay. So it was it was fucking hard. Like <laughs> it was the the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, I just I didn't know what I was getting in for. Um, I had media training. I had, you know, I thought I was this amazing bartender who knew everything about spirits. And I I walk into a bar that only has 500 bottles in the back bar, which in the global world is quite small. But I think 350 mm-hmm. of them came from a different distillery. So you know, if we had Balvenie, we had one Balvenie that we supported, mm-hmm. and that was the one that we liked. And we had to explain why we didn't carry a single other one of the Balvenies and what was the other product that fit into that spectrum. And then there's this whole list of rare spirits that you know I'd never seen because I lived in the U.S. Um, and that exist outside of the U.S. You know, a whole bunch of Scotch pr- producers or or bottling houses that I would just like. The learning curve was was it was quite steep. Um, I had help and. I thought it was amazing. I put out uh, a really like crazy cocktail list. You know, the person I worked with um, as my direct manager um, was from the U.S. Um, and he was just one of those like prolific readers. He had seen everything. And when we went down to to make cocktails, he's like, "These are the ideas that I'm thinking about." And so it was really my job just to make sure that they worked and to be able to translate that to the staff that I I worked with. So, did you learn some of the techniques that you have now there? Yeah, that was um, that was the best part about about being at 28 was that there was it wasn't money was no object, but it was you know if this is the thing that tastes the best, that's, that's how we're going to do it, and we're going to make it financially stable. You know, so for a long time, our well rye whiskey was Willet two year old um, before it became Willet three year old uh, in Singapore. That was about a hundred dollars a bottle, uh, wow. and that was your well. That was my well. Wow. Um, it was, you know, there was a, it was the product that we believed in most. It was a product that tastes best and old fashioned. So that's what we're going to do. Um, same thing. Can't disagree. No. Um, but on the, the flip side, Four Roses Yellow Label, the, the one that was actually meant for export was our well bourbon. And that was, you know, $40. And mm-hmm. it was just, it wasn't actually available in Singapore. We bought it uh, in pallets to bring to Singapore just for our bar. Hmm. But that was the thing that we liked the most, and so it was. It was about that, like that dichotomy. Um, that's where I really fell in love with plantation um, and the plantation products. What Alexander Gabriel with Maison Ferrand, like his real extreme approach to um, uh, clarity or openness, or you know, really just being honest about what's going into his products. You know, that was that was one of my like first eye-opening experiences. No marketing flam- flammery. I mean, there's marketing like it, like for this one, you know, it's, it's plantation three stars and three stars goes back to, you know, an old cognac system, but the three stars are Jamaica, Barbados and, um, Trinidad, obviously the, you know, the three British, um, uh, colonies that produced rum, uh, back in the day. And we're mentioning this because you're going to make us a cocktail in a little bit. And that's one of your, that's your main spirit. So you're in the most popular bar in uh, Singapore, you're learning a lot of new techniques. And then why did you leave there? Yeah, so like 28 was this like, like I said, juggernaut. Um, you know, I had a centrifuge, I had a slushing machine. Um, while I was there, we were voted the seventh best bar in the world, you know, the best bar in Asia. On um, the second year, we were, I think, 11th or 14th in the world. Um, but it was a very independent bar. And um, it operated on this very unique set of circumstances uh, where it was basically the public-facing entity to 
uh, a private company that did a lot of import export and um, bar consult and so i wanted to i wanted to see the other side i wanted to see either like a hotel or a marketing company and see how their budgets operated and how they would want to interact or support you know the little guy what's the point of you know Pernod or Campari or Diageo investing in a bar that does a quarter of the the sales of you know the beer bar down the street, but that small bar you know really brings to life the story of the spirits. Um, so I started to interview for jobs, and I was offered uh, kind of two jobs that I really wanted. Uh, I was offered a job in uh, Singapore. I'm oh, sorry, it's not Singapore. Uh, a job in Shanghai um, as the um, brand ambassador for Remy Cointreau. Uh, looking after all of China, so national brand ambassador role for one of the largest c- countries in the world, one of the highest consumers of cognac, um, which it, Remy is very much so. And another job, uh, which was uh, the brand ambassador for Pernod Ricard New Zealand, and you know I interviewed with the teams. Um, I went so far as actually to working in Shanghai for a week uh, with the team to figure out if you know if Shanghai was going to be okay. You know, a lot of people look at Singapore as being kind of Asia light. Uh, the national language is English. It's fairly friendly to Westerners, and so you know, taking that next step and going way down the path of living in a country where people predominantly speak Mandarin or Cantonese, uh, and you know, having to do presentations that are translated, a big difference. Um, and I almost turned down the job in New Zealand, um, but at the last minute, I kind of decided that. For me, especially for my mentality, that living in New Zealand would be better. Um, so I, I took this role uh, working as a, an ambassador for all of the spirits. You know, New Zealand's four and a half million people. It's you know a third of the size of Ohio. It's twice the land mass of Ohio. Um, so the, the population density is quite small. Uh, but I, I just I wanted to see what it was like to live in New Zealand. And uh, I'd been there before uh, visiting once and. I, I kind of saw a lot of corollaries between the way that they approach life um, as well as Midwesterners do. Um, so I felt like it would be just a, an easier lifestyle. So when you were giving cocktail presentations and you had your interpreter, so how, <laughs> that that sounds like a really unique um, situation. So you were like, so you shake this cocktail and then you'd have to wait for the interpreter to say what do, whatever, whatever. Yeah, so the, the, the week that I did in Shanghai, um, uh, I did presentations about 28 because I felt like that was the thing that I knew most about um, to talk about sure. what, had make, what had made 28 amazing, what had drawn me from you know Midwest Ohio to Singapore. And so um, the translator I had was actually, he's a very famous bartender. Um, his name's Yao. Uh, he was opening a bar, um, and he worked in the U.S. So he translated for me. Um, I tried to make jokes, and clearly he interjected his own jokes in <laughs> in Mandarin, where they made more sense because I was like, there are people laughing, and I didn't make a joke. <laughs> um, so that was one of my big fears about going to to Shanghai, um, and quite frankly, I'm. I think it was one of the best decisions I've ever made uh, moving to New Zealand as opposed to Shanghai. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. That's amazing experience. You've had so much experience in your your young age. So, where are you? Are you from Ohio originally, or? Yeah, so I was born in Xenia, um, 
my father's side of the family is from Yellow Springs, kind of that. The hippie artsy area where yeah. Dave Chappelle lives. Yeah, that, yeah that's true. But <laughs> um, his side of the family is more of like firefighters and police officers. Oh, okay. So they were the more conservative side of Yellow Springs. My dad was a firefighter too. Yeah. Um, uh, and my mom's side of the family was from Southern Ohio, uh, but uh, she'd grown up in Grove City. Um, so that's where I grew up. And okay. I spent most of my time in Grove City before moving to Cincinnati, Columbus. Um, I'd lived all of my life in Columbus or in Ohio until I was 26. And then, yeah, why not move to, to Singapore? Why not? So you're in New Zealand, you're you're liking it. So what 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 do you do after that? Um, so I've, I was working as a brand ambassador, which is, you know, it's about bringing the story of a brand to life. You know, you've got these massive corporations with these huge budgets, but, you know, why does a bartender pour this this brand over another brand or... You know, when you're you as a consumer, you walk into a bottle shop. Why do you find this bottle be, to be more compelling than this bottle, besides what it says on the label? Uh, and so, a lot of my job was to be able to tell that story, um, especially when you know when you, you go into a liquor store and you're trying to buy vodka, or you're trying to buy rum, or you're trying to buy American whiskey. It's not it's not one or two or ten. It's thirty or forty or a hundred options. And so. It's about empowering the people who work for that shop to you know, feel that you know they've tasted this product before. Or they've they met this person that was really nice, and they said that they should sell this product more than another one. Um, and so I, I I really loved that, and it was exciting to to take a completely different step outside of of bartending. You know, especially in New Zealand, I got to act, interact with a lot of very young bartenders. Um, you know, people who were who had you know been bartending for six months or less. And, you know, to talk about why you're excited about how much ice you put into a glass or how how you shake a cocktail, why you shake a cocktail, why you stir a cocktail, um, to teach them about that more than teaching them about the brand, to empower them to be slightly better bartenders. You know, how do you That's cool. really be hospitable? You know, why is it important that you smile or interact with your guests or ask them what they really want? Um, is the craft cocktail scene, is it... Um, is it booming like it is here in the U.S. everywhere? Or was it already booming? Or are we far behind? What? Um, New Zealand is very much a, a wine and beer market. You know, they, they grow world-class wine. They started growing wine and really focusing about wine around the same time as Napa. They've been doing that for at least 60 years. But the, um, the spirits game is a little bit farther behind. Um, I would say that there's a, a bit more money. You know, Auckland has, you know, it's a it's not the capital, but it, it has two ports. And it's very much a kind of condensed metropolis. Uh, I would compare Auckland or Wellington to about what's happening in Columbus. There's a little bit more wine and beer and especially food culture there um, because they are in this really, you know, high quality food establishment. So they, they do have that. Um, that going for them, and I, I think that the craft cocktail movement, and the craft beer market, and the craft even you know going back to the quality wine, really is is rooted with consumers thinking about what was happening with what they ate. You know, where you get out of the fifties and sixties and seventies of you know the cheese in a you know a can, and you know your you know what you microwave to eat, and you start to think about where your food comes from, and that you know that especially your slow food market starts happening in the U.S. in the, the 80s and 90s, around the same time that you start thinking about, you know, single malt whiskeys or aged bourbons. Um, and so a lot of that, you know, it's the consumers focusing on 
what they're eating translates to what they're drinking. And that really gives rise to, you know, especially as craft bartenders being able to give someone a, a 16 or $15 beverage that they could conceivably make at home. Mm-hmm. So then, uh, how did you come back to, to the States? I just knew it was time. You know, I've been, I've been gone for three years and, you know, as much as I loved being abroad, like, I just knew that the U.S. has a, a lot of potential. It's, it is the place where the cocktail was born. Mm-hmm. It might have been refined or, you know, improved in other countries. But, you know, this is its home. This is where I'm from. Yeah. The cocktail was born here, not in London? I would, I would say that New Orleans would be the, you know, the birthplace of the cocktail. Okay. American bartenders. With the Sazerac? Uh, David Wondrick would say that that was incorrect. Okay. Um, what would he say? Um, he would say the you know the bitter bitter whiskey skin, like kind of that just bitters whiskey and and water, um, maybe a little bit of sugar would be the original cocktail. Okay. That's definitely that individualistic idea of consumption is okay. I think much more American. Yeah. Um, if I think about London, I think about punch, and I think about consuming as a group, mm-hmm. um, and maybe we can you know draw a correlate to our economies and you know, America is definitely much more about the self, the individual, whereas maybe socialist company countries are a little bit more about, you know, the group. So, you know, some corollaries between drinking and, and economy <laughs> could be. Um, but I definitely think that I, I feel like the cocktail was born here. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately we had prohibition in the 1920s mm-hmm. demonized this profession and sent a lot of those people abroad. Uh, and that, might even make cocktails much better because mm-hmm. you condense some of the greatest talents. They moved to London, they moved to Paris, uh, they moved to like, Southeast Asia. And suddenly all of these people in the U.S. who are living in this massive country and never interacting are now working at the same bar. You know, Harry's in Paris. You know, there's these places that uh, become iconic. The, um, the Savoy, American bar. Uh, and that's where you know, that, that next big boom after the golden age of the cocktail happens. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they bring all those flavors and, and stuff back, back here. So, yeah. And, and professionalism. I, I don't, I, I know that Europe has rubbed off on me a bit. Um, I think it's crazy that people don't bartend in, in aprons or ties. Um, but I'm also like, personally, like I love bartending in a t-shirt and I would love to be able to own a bar that I could make you, a uh, a $15 Manhattan and a t-shirt and then serve the next person a PBR. <laughs> but, you know, that's a, that's personal as opposed to, you know, what I currently represent. Which yeah. is, you know. So currently you're at Citizens Trust, which is an absolutely beautiful bar. It's a, it's a old bank, the old, um, Ohio national or Citizens Trust then purchased by Ohio national bank, but you're in a beautiful space. It's massive though. And you, you guys did an event over Christmas. What is it called? The Miracle? Yeah, we did the uh, Miracle pop-up, yeah. And I think we are blessed. I unabashedly would say that I think we have the most beautiful bar in Columbus. Oh, for sure. They've got you know 30-foot ceilings, you know, these beautiful pillars, um, a very ornate ceiling. And we're in, you know, a 6,000-foot lobby. You know, so it's... I think we're quite lucky with that. It's very beautiful. If you, if you haven't been there, listeners, definitely get there. It's at the corner of Gay and High in Columbus, Ohio. It's it's a beautiful, beautiful space. 
I love it's an how extension of Veritas restaurant, correct? Yeah, yeah. And that, that's the that's the cool thing. You're you know you're talking about science. We kind of left that a while ago, um, but you know we're a you know a cocktail bar in a lobby, but we have the same tools and techniques that exist at Veritas. You know, in in Singapore, I learned about you know centrifuges and um, distillation and rotovaps. All of these kind of very you know Roto sun, what? rotovaps or rotary evaporator. Okay. Um, it's a technique for distilling at reduced temperature and reduced pressure. Okay. Now, of course, we avoid alcohol. We're making hydrosols uh, where we're distilling vinegars or waters. Um, but we have the same tools and techniques. You know, I, I go downstairs um, to Aaron, who's the, you know, kind of the the chef at, at Veritas for day to day. Um, and I say, hey, I, I want to thicken this syrup. Um, what what should I use? And he's like, oh, you know, I've got Ultratex 8. And I was like, oh, cool, sweet. Like, it's this, like, random number, um, something from Monitor's Pantry. Or, you know, I want to, you know, create a sorbet or I want to, like, make a foam. And all of these things, you know, there's, like, this is the percentage that we use downstairs to make this, you know, this sauce or this this foam. And instead of me having to do all of that, legwork there's you know this really really intelligent kitchen below um at the same point you know we're um it's a tasty menu restaurant you know that's putting out you know, three six and nine course menus right now and so i say you know i want this random leaf or you know like what's what's the you know the 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 vegetable supplier giving us this week that i can use for upstairs and we have just access to to be able to you know grab random flavors that I, I haven't ever had the opportunity to really interact with before. That's fun. Yeah. Um, and that, that, like that culinary side is really cool. Mm-hmm. And I, I do think that you know, we're a, a much different style establishment than Veritas. Veritas is a, you know, 70 seats at most and it's, it's very intimate and it's, it's quite controlled and we're in this 6,000 square foot, you know, lobby bar um, and sometimes things can get a little bit on the outside of control um, so we we can't necessarily offer that you know that 12 course tasting experience where you're going to have a very quiet intimate experience with the person next to you you might get bumped by someone who's also enjoying a, a cocktail um, and so that's why I, I love that kind of that organized chaos um, 28 in Singapore was very much that it was a uh, the bar that you could go to on a, a Tuesday and spend five hundred dollars on a bottle of champagne and you know have this really intimate experience, and then on Friday, you know, a, a bartender might be walking down the bar pouring shots. You know, mm. it's a, one of those like that dichotomy, and I feel like that exists very much between Veritas and Citizens, where you know if you want that really amazing that uh, curated food experience, uh, Veritas can be that that first bit, and you can finish up with a you know a little bit more of a a relaxed cocktail upstairs. That's good advice. I would say before and after. Yeah, vice, it could go the other way too. You could pregame upstairs mm-hmm. at Citizens Trust. I would say do both. But so the miracle <laughs> thing that you did, I, I actually heard about that. I was listening to a podcast called Speakeasy and they were talking about that and it uh, it sounds pretty crazy. So what, what in the world made you, first of all, were you the only bar in Columbus to do that? So Miracle is a uh, concept that was created by um, Greg Bohm and Nico DeSoto, um, two New York legends. 
I might have Greg's last name wrong. I'm not super great at the pronouncing, but um, uh, Greg is one of the co-founders of Cocktail Kingdom, uh, which provides really amazing bar tools and bitters and books and, and glassware. And Nico, who is a French bartender, but had spent quite a bit of time in the U.S. And they opened a bar together. Um, it's known as Mace. I think it actually, they, they closed this week and they're reopening a different location, uh, which is kind of crazy. Uh, but when they first went to start to open the bar, uh, the, you know, when every bar opens, it's, it's not a week behind schedule. It's six weeks or eight weeks behind schedule. And right. that, that's like, that's really great if you open your bar within six weeks. <clears throat> so what they were, um, they were struggling to open before Christmas and they weren't able to do it. And so instead of opening an unfinished bar, uh, in you know November or opening a finished bar in January, they decided to cover everything in wrapping paper and do a Christmas theme pop up, uh, and that happened I think in 2014, um, and that was the, the first Miracle Bar. And so they <clears throat> they had this really successful launch, and then people around the U.S. started asking t- to be able to do the same thing, um, and so uh, they then licensed the product, um, and so they offer one per city to be able to buy into the miracle concept oh, okay um i think there were two in chicago and two in new york but everywhere else you could just have one and they curate a cocktail menu and they get really cool glassware and they help you with kind of the theming and idea but at the end of the day it's really up to you to be able to create a christmas bar okay and it was did you know that it was going to be that popular and that insane because you were you were slammed every night yeah i mean i i'd only worked at the bar for three months at this point and i knew that we were going to be busy and i had prepared for that and um i was really you know working with cat program understand the the concept of batching and how you can make your bar more efficient and i really thought that i had it and you know it was every week was just trying to be able to make more cocktails and you know, we did this astronomical amount of sales and we made an astronomical amount of cocktails too, because we were a hundred percent cocktails at this point. Um, and you know, we only have had so much space to make drinks. So, you know, we, we, it's not that we magically had, you know, four stations to make drinks for the 125 people in our bar that were asking for drinks that had seven and eight ingredients. It was that we we still had two two wells to make drinks, and we were just you know kind of flying by the seat of our pants. Um, I thought it was a really cool experience. You know, I I think I have the strongest bar team in the city to be able mm-hmm. to to be able to turn that around. There, there was the miracle. It's the miracle, um, <laughs> and and so you know uh, we signed on really late. It was supposed to be held somewhere else, and that that bar fell through. Um, and so it was offered to me by a dear friend. And she said, you know, like, I can't do this concept if you want to try to do it. It's it's there for you. We've already set up all the paperwork and we've got it. We've got it nearly there. Um, and so three weeks before this insanity, I had signed on to the bar idea. Wow. But most other bars had signed on in July. Um, so they'd been planning for six months for this insanity. And, you wow. know, I just signed on to a new bar and it was my job to like bring it back up and make it profitable. And now I'm not just talking about profitable. You know, it's basically I, we made as many drinks as I could batch, and um, in the like the seven to eight hundred on wow uh, a Saturday, which is 
don't know, for two bartenders. That's <laughs> Not an appropriate number. So tell me the names of some of the uh, cocktails that you had. Um, well, I think the Christmapolitan will just never go away. It's, you know, it's a, a vodka kind of cosmopolitan, a little St. Germain, rosemary, absinthe. It's like really insane cranberry syrup. But it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't highbrow cranberry syrup. It was made with, you know, the, like the canned cranberry sauce <laughs> and, you know, um, ocean spray cranberry cocktail. <clears throat> uh, we had the, the Jingle Balls Nog. Um, there's a, <laughs> that yippee, was actually really delicious. That was really good. Uh, yippee Kaye motherfucker or <laughs> Yippee Kaye mother F snowflake, 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 uh, ER. Um, I thought we were going to sell more of those. Um, but apparently, I would have bought that. Apparently people aren't a fan of Die Hard. No, of course they are. Yeah, of course they are. That's like the best. It's oh, a Christmas movie. Wow. Yeah, there, there's totally definitely a, a, there's a, there's a, a line, you know, of people who think that Die Hard's a Christmas movie. And people who are just not human. Right. <laughs> That's so funny. But you made it through, mm-hmm. and now you're on the other side of that. Um, I did not uh, make it to your place for that. Blair did, and uh, he was like, wow, I've never seen so many people at that bar at one time. But you guys apparently pulled, you even did our cocktail tour during that mayhem, and and uh, everybody was happy, so yeah. I guess it worked out. No complaints. Out well. Everybody was very happy. Yeah. Nightmares. I <laughs> still dream about it. <laughs> All right, Logan. So um, this is a point in our program where we're gonna take a break, and you're gonna make us a cocktail. What are you gonna make us tonight? Um, I'm gonna make you just a, a plain daiquiri. Um, mm, my favorite. I think a lot of times, you know, I have traveled quite a bit and. You know, you meet bartenders from around the world, and uh, a lot can be said about how someone chooses to make just a, a really simple three-ingredient drink. I'm going to make it from someone um, who I, I got to work with a bit in Singapore, um, who I, I don't think realized how much they impacted how I changed how I make daiquiris, um, based on kind of their approach. Uh, he's a very... Um, a very well-respected uh, bartender named David Cordoba. Um, he worked for you know kind of one of the larger rum companies um, as a global brand ambassador, and um, he's actually launched his own rum, which I really want to try at some point. Uh, but he had this very specific way of making a daiquiri um, that I'm going to try to recreate. In awesome! A, I can't wait. can't wait. So we'll awesome. uh, we'll take a break, make a cocktail, and and we'll come back, and you'll tell us all about your uh, technique. And we are back with Logan's Daiquiri. So, cheers. This looks great. Cheers, cheers guys. Cheers. I'm excited. So, the Daiquiri is one of my favorite drinks. The Hemingway is my all time favorite, but I love a Daiquiri. So, I'm excited to taste this one. Do you like yours a little bit sweeter? Mm-mm. It's a little delicious. tart. I like I like them a little bit tart. That is so good. So here's the funny thing. I had always thought that a daiquiri meant uh, a blender and uh, like a slushy type thing. 
but once I learned what a real daiquiri was, it's it's one of my all-time favorite drinks. So tell us how you made this. Yeah, so I think, you know, the, the daiquiri's got a, a really long history. Um, I think probably it was originally made with lemons as opposed to limes. Uh, very much a, a Cuban classic, and sadly I've never been to Cuba you know, as a good American Yet. citizen. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. Um, but the citrus there is quite different, you know, and the citrus in Singapore, the citrus in New Zealand, like they always taste different. Um, but the, the beauty of a daiquiri is it's a balance between, you know, a really well-crafted, I think, white rum, but maybe aged, um, citrus and sugar. And so for this one, instead of using a simple syrup, um, which would be well integrated, um, I kind of made a, a faux simple syrup with the lime and uh, the sugar and using actual, you know, a castor sugar or a fine white sugar. And part of what that did was allowed me to shake it a bit longer. Um, you know, if you, if you hear the audio, instead of shaking for that, you know, 10 or 15 seconds, it's a lot closer to that 25 or, or 30 seconds. And mm -hmm. um, when you pour the daiquiri, you get this like this audible, like the, all of the oxygen that you've incorporated and I feel like those those kind of those little bits of granulated sugar that still are there help to create this really wonderful foamy head, um, and so you can you know you can audibly hear that. Um, it gives you opportunity to kind of assess how much sugar to use per lemon. Um, so David, who made these, is a very big sweet tooth. Um, so he would have used at least a spoonful of sugar more each. Um, or like that kind of American style daiquiri, it's a little bit more tangy, a little bit more refreshing. I prefer this too. Yeah. And I noticed you stirred the l sugar with the lime before you added the rum. Right. So, um, uh, sugar and alcohol don't mix. Uh, they really don't like to, you know, if you've ever tried to pour sugar into straight whiskey, it will never, it will never kind of come into a solution. Uh, the lime juice doesn't have the alcohol, so it's a little bit easier to start integrating that sugar into the lime juice. Um, I used a bar spoon, you know, a really, I think, proper technique would probably use a little bit more of a whisk, something where you could start aerating that lime juice a little bit, mm -hmm. um, bringing those two things together. Um, I don't think they're completely mixed. You know, on the bottom of the shaker, there's probably a little bit of sugar left there's over. There's no granules in my drink, though. No, but it, it, there's something textural that isn't just simple syrup. You can, you can feel that. Um, not in a bad way, just it's sugar. To be honest, your, I can't feel it. your ice might have worked really well for it. Um, if I was, you know, at, you know, craft cocktail bar, where we've got, you know, Hoshizaki or cold draft, like these big one inch cubes, uh, I would have actually put crushed ice on, on top of the shaker tin. Um, so, you know, you fill it mostly with these large, beautiful cubes that everyone knows, and then just a little bit of crushed ice. So you actually fill the shaker tin. Um, mm -hmm. David would have used, you know, a, a three piece, um, kind of Japanese cobbler shaker. So it was like really beautiful, like that one, one, two, three, one, one, two, three, one. Um, if you've ever seen a Japanese bartender mm. with their much shorter shakers, uh, but I'm, I'm not so skilled. I feel much <laughs> more at home with my, my two piece. I would say you're pretty skilled. So you use the, um, the what is this, plantation three star rum and then granulated sugar in your lime juice. It's just so simple. Yeah, I love that. And I really think that, you know, with the number of ingredients comes complexity. You know, you can put eight ingredients in a cocktail and it's going to be complex. It's going to have lots of layers of flavor. 
because you've put eight ingredients in. That ability to be able to balance, you know, a, a much shorter ingredient list, a, a three or a four or a five ingredient cocktail, is is much more difficult and it's much more nuanced. It's you know understanding how sour your limes are. Mm-hmm. Um, in Singapore, we were looking at the pH content or the sugar content of our, our citrus because we had such varying degrees. You know, not all limes taste the same. You know, in the U.S., you can see key limes or you can see, um, you know, the um, uh, uh, Parisian lime. Oh, I have no idea. The regu- right regular lime. Um, the limes, the, the, the larger limes, you know, you get that like coconutty, like aromatic from the larger limes. The key limes are this really intense uh, malic sour. Um, but... You know, in a lot of other places, your limes have this this wide variety. And so it's about being able to understand, you know, how sour your limes are today or how how much sugar content is them. And to be able to say that you you don't always put those four full, full scoops of sugar. Sometimes you put three. Yeah. Or instead of putting a half ounce, you put three quarter of an ounce. Or, you know, for me, it was it's become, you know, 15 mils or 20 mils and thinking about cocktails in a completely different spectrum. So, as I said, you use a lot of crazy um, techniques, I guess not crazy to people in the industry, but crazy to me, the person who just enjoys cocktails. Um, One of the techniques that you guys employ at Citizens Trust, I don't know if you still do, but I know you did in the beginning, was something called milk washing or washing. How does... Yeah, I was actually... um I was really on the fence because today I'm working on the next menu and we're going to have both uh, clarified coconut milk and uh, milk wash uh, gin punch uh, on the next menu. And so I was like, you know, do I do I want to bring the daiquiri, this thing that I like, I know that I trust and I really care about, or do I want to bring this kind of like fat wash um, flavor profile? And um, at the end of the day, you know, I, I love the idea of fat washing. Um, what does that mean? Um, fat washing and milk washing a little bit different, uh, but basically with you know a, a clarified milk punch, you're taking something that has a protein and a fat structure, and you're mixing it in with alcohol, and then you're adding some type of citrus element that's causing the the fat to break. So you know if you know about cheese making, you know mm-hmm. about curds and whey. Um, it's about creating these fat curds that attach to compounds that just aren't in the milk some of them might be in the actual the cocktail themselves if you put black tea or if you put you know a, a red wine and I actually bond with some of those like those tannic acid or you know those things that are slightly more bitter and they'll pull them out and you know really beautiful milk wash um, will create we'll take a cocktail that might be cloudy or it might be brown it might be red it might be um, yellow and it will make it clear um, and it's it's not necessarily straining through you know a filter fat is actually straining through the curds that you create and um, mm. when you do a milk wash punch you get this this really beautiful textural element um, and, and body uh, from all the proteins that are found in the milk but you also pull out some of the the, the bitter aspects um, so the I think the milk wash punch that you tried before um, was gin black tea pineapple um, lemon peel and maybe I think it was white wine and when I made the the black tea, if, if you've ever you know made tea at home, you know if you put a tea bag in uh, boiling water and you let it sit there for ten or fifteen minutes and you try to drink that tea, it's just incredibly bitter. It's unpleasant. Mm-hmm. It's not something you want to, to drink. 
And what the milk washing will do is it will it will bind to all those extra those extra tannins, those like really drying elements you get at the back of your palate, and they'll pull them out, and you'll be left with the sweeter elements of the tea. Um, and so it's a it's a really old technique, you know, going back to that idea of of London and punch, you know, the um, milk washed punch goes well before the cocktail. It's in the you know the late seventeen or or mid 1700s that's it's almost 250 years old at this point um so it's not a technique that is is new hmm. uh, but it's one of those that's been brought back on um using alternative fats like coconut milk or a, a little bit um more nouveau uh but uh, i think i learned a lot about that there was a, a camper english article uh camper runs uh academics uh he's a, a blogger out of san francisco and he he really like delves into topics and gets really geeky about them. You know, he's the first person that I read about clarified ice uh, in, in a, a cooler. Uh, he's the person that um, you know, kind of like, he's just launched a, a new article called Cocktail Safe. Uh, it's cocktailsafe.org. Um, and it's about thinking about the things that we put in cocktails um, and, you know, assessing if they're actually food safe or not food safe, you know. Something like activated charcoal is not a food in- ingredient by the FDA, but you see it used a lot of times to make burgers black or cocktails black. Um, mm. But it's not technically a food additive. It's not legal to put into food. Mm-hmm. Um, or uh, making your own tonic water or your own tonic syrup. Uh, 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 quinine or uh, quinine, depending on which side of the, the ocean you're on, um, is, is a really strong drug, and it can have quite adverse effects if you don't know what the actual content is and the, uh, the centrona bark. Um, so he's he's the person that I've like found all of the, a lot of this information about. And he just writes these just like really in-depth articles that, you know, seem to be rooted in science, but also still from not 100% professional. I love that, you know, something, it sounds so complicated, but it, it came from back in the, what, probably 1800s, early 1800s, just like the craft cocktails that we enjoy today, these are all things that are being brought back from those early pre-prohibition time. Um, It's just so crazy to me that they, and back then the bartenders were rock stars and they used fresh, they were the chefs of the, the cocktail glass. It's just I'm so glad that all that stuff is coming back. It's yeah, and that really we have amazing. some great, talented people in our town that are geeky enough to want to bring them back. No, no offense. Like, <laughs> I mean that in the in the best of ways. But isn't that? I mean that that's the question that I am dealt with every day: is what's next? You know, how are we going to continue to modify our industry? Um, that was the beauty of of 28 Hong Kong Street in Singapore: is that it it started as this like back alley speakeasy that no one knew where the entrance was and became this very popular bar. And it, like, the interior was renovated three times in six years mm-hmm. and a cocktail list every year. Um, it kept modifying itself to be current with the times. And I, I think that's, you know, what the bars that have stayed in that world's 50 best list have done. So what, what are we doing now is, you know, contemporaries thinking about, you know, the you know, CrossFit and, you know, health movement. How are we, how are we adapting to being part of that, or are we choosing not to? Are mm-hmm. we deciding that we believe that cocktails are an indulgence and that 
they need to to stay at that certain level or do we need to start reducing the sugar and reducing the alcohol to kind of think of the health vibe? I think you're going to figure it out. And I think you're going to keep us on our toes here in Columbus, Ohio. We truly appreciate that. So you're a world traveler. You've worked at uh, many different bars. So you got to have a story or two to tell. What's your best bar story? No, you don't have to Remember, tell me it's names. Our, it's rated. Yeah, I can't they tell you. Can I, I was like, I'm like, no names. What was the craziest thing that happened to you in uh, Singapore or Shanghai? Or well, Singapore Zealand? is one of those places that, you know, the, the craziest things don't happen in Singapore. They happen in Thailand ah. um, or they happen in London. Um, like, oh. <laughs> Even without names, some of these stories are just like <laughs> best kept. Um, I did a, a pop up in uh, <clears throat> a bar in London uh, with a very famous bartender, uh, uh, Zdenek, uh, and Z kind of was dragging me along to this event that he'd been invited for, <clears throat> and we uh, we stayed in the Shangri La. Uh, in London, in the Shard. Is that a real place? Yeah, Shangri-La is a hotel chain. Um, they're uh, seven-star hotels. I thought that was just a song, yeah. a 70s song. I didn't... Um, well, there's that, too. Okay. That's different. Sorry, continue. <laughs> and I... So the... Oh, man. How do I put this in a way that no one gets in trouble? Um, so we we basically were, we were representing uh, 28 Hong Kong Street in in London and this pop-up was supposed to be two days and it's supposed to be real chill like three hour bar shifts and it turned into five days and each one was five hours um, so all of the prep we did on the first day was done on the first day and none of the things that we had brought from Singapore existed um, and the last night that we were there we kind of just started putting stickers all over this other person's bar these like little like heart-shaped 28 stickers um, I just remember waking up in my ho- hotel room in the Shangri-La um, with a bottle of champagne in the bathtub. You woke up in the bathtub. Was yeah. the champagne bottle empty? Yeah, it was. And um, <laughs> nothing had any clothes on. Um, and I don't remember exactly what happened in the Shangri-La, but I know that I didn't leave. I think that's how you, the song goes. You say that as if nothing as if you weren't alone <laughs> oh well the best part was i was sharing the room with z ah. um, who is just a good mate and honestly like nothing did happen but we ended up going to a couple of different bars in the shard uh, which is the like this super ritzy hotel and i feel like at every establishment we like chugged a bottle of champagne and at some point like i just ended up and i was like i'm just gonna take a bath <laughs> and that's how I woke up like eight hours later in a bathtub <laughs> with a bottle of champagne in hand. Luckily, I survived that. It, Wait, it, so there was water in the bathtub? Yeah, there was. Yeah. So were you freezing your ass off? Was oh, it like oh, cold as shit? Spot. No, I don't remember. He <laughs> <laughs> didn't feel it. No. On the same night, uh, well, the night before, someone in a ta- uh, taxi had... Um, Taken my, I like fell asleep in a taxi apparently, and um, someone borrowed my phone and called my girlfriend and uh, told her that we were getting strippers and going back to the hotel room. 
And I never knew that happened because I woke up the next day to a lot of angry text messages. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a nice friend. Uh, he, he was actually the global ambassador for uh, Monkey Shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> he's, a, he's an amazing person. Uh, that's funny. So are you happy to be back here in Columbus? Yeah, I actually really struggled with that for a second. Um, I didn't realize how how hard it had been living overseas um, in terms of like a mental and physical. Like we, you know, we, we work in one of the possibly most taxing industries in the world. Um, and there's not, you know, the access to kind of the healthcare that we need a lot of times and living abroad had been this like amazing journey and it was like go 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 for three years and I, I don't know how many countries that I traveled to or how many you know 24 hour flights that I took um, but I had this like you know this this dream vacation that a lot of people would would think about and then you know coming home has like I've just I've been happier than I ever thought I would be um, and I've, I, I still, to this day, I, I don't, I can't put a reason to it. Like it might just be, you know, the routine that I'm in, like that I'm like slowing down for a second. Uh, but Columbus is home. I don't know. Uh, I don't think it's where I'm going to stay for now. Uh, I've lived in 24-hour cities or cities that have that feeling, and I still feel a little bit too young to be in a city that closes at 11 p.m. Uh, but uh, there are people who are excited and there are people that are working really hard and there are people that are driving the industry and there's a lot of opportunity to be able to present something new even not just to you know the US but to the, the Midwest that uh, doesn't exist in some of the bigger markets and I really enjoy that about Columbus mm -hmm. and it's not easy you know we're a control state we've got a, a select list of products that we can use uh, but you don't necessarily have to have, you know, a thousand different colors to, to paint a beautiful you know, portrait. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes it's just the primary colors. It's being able to use the things that are readily available to say that, you know, this $17 bottle of rum is the one that I really believe in and that I can make great things with. And sometimes it might be harder to do that than if you have 40 different products to be able to juxtapose. Totally, totally agree. And so well said. Logan Demi, thank you. We're welcome home, and we're very happy that you're back, and we hope that you stay forever because we need you to show us new things and new techniques, and I know you're going to figure out how to keep this industry exciting and new. And thank you for being our guest. It was a, it was a pleasure. When you say, yeah. Blair, did Abs you like your daiquiri? Oh, absolutely. You're not a rum guy. No, no, but... This was a great cocktail. Delicious. Was so it too simple, sweet? No. No? no. Just simple perfect. and delicious. Yeah. How about you, Hansberry? It was just right. Yeah, it's, um, it's just really well balanced. To your point, you can tell the difference between the granular and the, and the simple syrup, and I like it. Yeah. I feel like I can see, see it, but I can't feel it on my tongue, and I can't, it doesn't taste... I don't like feel I, grains on my tongue. I just right. feel a different viscosity than if simple were in it. It's not necessarily that. It's just that you're not adding dilution with the simple syrup. Oh, because yes. You know, if you put if you put a half an ounce that of makes sense. simple syrup into a cocktail, that's a quarter. Then, 
Yeah, three, a quarter of that is water. And so you're okay. not that quarter of water, so you're allowing the rum to be a little bit more predominant in the overall flavor profile. So you're very sensitive to water. I remember, I can't remember what we were doing, but I was chilling glasses with water, and you had said, oh, I don't actually like to do that because it's adding water. Yeah. I think that's a real, that's a, that's a real debate. Um, I, well, it's an ingredient. It is. Yeah. And so if you're, if you're putting ice in a glass and you're adding dilution and you're not wiping the glass dry afterwards, then you're adding dilution that you weren't accounting for when you shook the cocktail. If you're taking a, a glass out of the freezer or out of the fridge, it's already reduced in temperature. So you're not necessarily warming the drink up. Yeah. Um, with dilution though, you're, you're not talking about the change in temperature you're talking about a change in state you know dilution is changing solid water to liquid water and that's where that energy is um and that's much that's orders of magnitude larger than changing water from 32 degrees to 40 degrees fahrenheit you see this is why i think we have the best bartenders in the freaking world right here do you hear that <laughs> So listeners, definitely get to Citizens Trust to visit Logan. Um, it's an amazing bar, not only for their cocktails, but for the decor. And and the rest of his staff. Oh, yeah. All the staff over there is really, really top notch. Yeah, they're all, they're all really, really wonderful. Also, uh, thanks to our producer, Greg Hansberry. Thank you very much. And thanks to our um, original music by the biographer, Check out our website at ColumbusCraftCocktailTour.com for events. And follow us on Instagram at, what's our Instagram? SeabusCraftCocktailTour. And you can also uh, follow us on Facebook. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And rate us and review us on SoundCloud, if you please. That really helps us out. Always remember to drink responsibly, tip appropriately, and be cocktail curious. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.